Signs and symbols are very important to people. And I don't mean just in a religious sense or setting. This is true for all people all the time. You just take maybe the most universal example of numbers. Think about numbers. The number two is just a symbol. That's all it is. It has no meaning on its own. It points to some other substance. So maybe your child is two years old. Maybe you're like me. You like two eggs, two pieces of bacon, and two pieces of toast for breakfast. It's like my ideal breakfast. Maybe you're hoping that this sermon is only going to be two minutes long. I don't know. (laughs) But it's a symbol. That's all two is. It's a sign that has no particular meaning on its own until it's assigned to some substance. Last week, we talked about circumcision. And circumcision was the primary sign of Judaism. It's what marked the Jewish people as distinct from the rest of the people of the world. So it was very important, but it was just a sign. The substance was the special covenant relationship the Jews had with God. It pointed to the promises that God promised to be their God. He promised to bless them. He promised to make them into his people and into a great nation. Kind of like I wear a wedding ring. A lot of you guys are married here. You wear a wedding ring, and the ring is a symbol. That's what it is. It's a sign. It communicates to the world around me that I'm in a lifelong covenant committed relationship called marriage with my wife. And the ring is a good thing. It's good for the world to know I'm taken, I'm committed, I love my wife, I am devoted to being faithful to protect and cherish and love her. But let's say there's a married man or a married woman who also wears a wedding ring, but walks out on their spouse, repeatedly cheats on their spouse, abandons their spouse, but they still wear the ring. Is the sign of any value anymore at that point? Of course not. If anything, it makes a mockery of the relationship that they've been unfaithful to. And at the close of Romans chapter 2, this is exactly the point that Paul makes about the Jews. He says they've been unfaithful to their covenant relationship with God, but they think they're going to be accepted by Him because they have circumcision. And Paul says, no way. That's not how any of this works. This is what he says in Romans 2.25. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? You see what he's saying here? It's just like if a man or a woman who is married forgets their wedding ring one morning. They go out on the town, and they're going to work, and they're going to the grocery store, no ring. Or maybe they lose it for an extended period of time. They're not wearing their wedding ring, but they're still faithfully loving their spouse. They're still committed to them. They're still devoted to them. They're still sacrificing for them. They're still cherishing them. They're still fulfilling the covenant of marriage, aren't they? They're not unmarried because they lack the sign. They are far more married than the adulterer who keeps the ring on. And Paul says, if you're circumcised, but you break God's laws, you're basically uncircumcised. 
And if you're uncircumcised, but you keep the law's requirements, then you have the substance of circumcision, even if you lack the sign. Now, an important question, what does Paul mean when he says, keep the law's requirements? Does that mean then that a person, Jew or Gentile, has to perfectly obey the law to be accepted by God, to go to heaven? Not at all. Paul's going to explain this a whole bunch more in the book of Romans, but he says this explicitly in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Why? Listen to this, verse 4. Why? In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the law's requirements cannot be fulfilled by anybody through obedience, except Jesus. He's the only person. Jesus is the only human being who could perfectly obey the law from the heart his entire life because Jesus is God. Jesus is the eternal, perfect Son of God become a human being. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. He fulfilled the whole law completely. Every iota of it. And then he was crucified as a criminal. He was murdered. He was killed. He was punished. The Bible says, in your place. That's why he went to the cross. And Paul says the law's requirements were fulfilled by Jesus for you on the cross. When you turn from your sin and you believe that he died in your place on the cross to take your penalty, when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus and not in circumcision, not in your obedience, not in your lineage, not in your Christian heritage, then the law's requirements are fulfilled on your behalf by Him. That's the gospel. Salvation is a free gift from God. It is a gift of His grace. And so Paul, up to this point, through the end of chapter 2, he's made two critical claims. First, he says true circumcision points to a heart. It's not a physical outward condition. It is an inward, invisible heart condition. It points to a heart that turns from sin, loves and worships God, trusts in Jesus, and is transformed by the Spirit. That's what true circumcision is. The second claim he makes is that faith in Christ, this heart condition that comes by faith, can come to anyone, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. Anybody can have a circumcised heart in Christ. Now, at this point, if you're a Jew living in the first century, you're going to have some serious questions. And with the rest of our time, we're going to look at three questions that Paul addresses in our text this morning. The first one, I think, is one that many Christians actually still wonder about today. You might be wondering it right now. Here it is. Here's question number one. If being Jewish and being circumcised is really about the heart, not the flesh. If it's really an internal, invisible condition of the heart brought about by the Spirit of God, and if anyone can have that heart regardless of their ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, 
then what's the point of Judaism? What's the point? If God can bring anybody into his people, why mark out a specific people for himself with the Jews? At first first glance, you you look at Romans 1, Romans 2, where Paul is going, it seems like the natural implication to draw is that Judaism is pointless. It's meaningless. Circumcision is pointless. It's meaningless. It has no benefit at all. Jews are Gentiles. Gentiles are Jews. It's all the same. This is what Paul's getting at in verse 1. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Paul, are you saying there's no advantage? There's no benefit? There's no point at all to Judaism? Is that what you're telling us? Now, if the answer is yes, then Paul's in big trouble. Do you see that? If the answer is, yeah, there's no point to Judaism, it's all the same thing, then Paul must be wrong about everything else he's saying. Because who chose the nation of Israel? Who established the covenant? Who commanded circumcision? Who gave the law? It was God. (laughs) This is not something that people made up and invented. And so if it's all pointless and useless, then Paul must be wrong. It can't be pointless and useless because it came from God. How's Paul going to answer the question? What is the benefit of circumcision? Verse 2, considerable in every way. First, They, the Jews, were entrusted with the very words of God. So what's the point of Judaism? Paul says the Jews had massive blessing, massive advantage over all of the other people in the world. And he says the first thing, the primary advantage they had is that God spoke to them uniquely, clearly, authoritatively, and directly. He says they were entrusted with the very words of God. This is the primary advantage. But it's not the only advantage. And it reads, Paul writes this, you expect him to list the other advantages. He says, first, they're entrusted with the very words of God. And then you're anticipating second, third, fourth. Here's the other things. It's almost as if he gets sidetracked. He doesn't get back to this list until chapter 9. But he does get back to it. In chapter 9, verse 4, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs. And from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. Paul says there's tons of advantages to being Jewish. Tons of advantages. They're part of God's family, God's children. They get to participate in His glory. They get to have His law. They have the presence of God in the temple. They have the promises of God given to Abraham that would ultimately result in the coming of Jesus, who's the Savior of the world. Tons of advantages. But in chapter 3, he focuses on only one. He says they were entrusted with the very words of God. Why is this where he starts? Well, I think it's because all of the other advantages of being Jewish flow from this one. In order to know God, in order to have his promises, in order to know what his instructions are, he has to speak to you. He has to reveal these truths to you. 
to you. And so Paul says there's incredible advantage in being a Jew. God spoke first and uniquely to the Jews. But just because he speaks to you doesn't mean you know him automatically. You still have to trust him. You still have to have faith in him and what he says the way Abraham did. It's not enough just to have his word in the law and just to have circumcision. The point is to have him. And so the Jews, Paul says they had a massive head start on the rest of the world. They knew God's moral standard. They knew God's plan. They knew about the coming of the Messiah. They knew about God's salvation. You think about how many times the Jews as a nation saw the salvation of God. They saw it in the story of Adam and Eve. They saw it repeatedly with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They saw it with the Israelites in Egypt. I've been studying the book of Exodus again recently. I mean, it's just incredible. They knew that God is a God who saves by His grace. They knew that before the rest of the world did. And so what is the point of Judaism? It was God's plan to bring about the salvation of the world. It was through the Jews God sent His Son to save the entire world. Much advantage in every way. Paul would never minimize the importance of Judaism. Next question then. Verse 3. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Here's a way you could restate that question. Does the unfaithfulness of the Jewish people cancel God's promises to them? This is the next logical question. Okay, so here's the logic. Paul, you're admitting, you're admitting that the law, the commands, circumcision, the promises of God's covenant blessing did come directly from God. Okay, great. That's what we believe. Okay, this is, so this is the Jews. That's what we believe, and that means that Jews are justified. The Jewish people are justified because we have the law, the promises, and circumcision. That means we're in. We're in the family. We're on the team because that's what God says. That's what God did. This was God's doing, God's work, God's plan. We agree with you, Paul. That means we're in. We're justified. Unless, unless, are you saying that just because some Jews have been unfaithful, that cancels God's promise to the rest of us? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Answer, verse 4. Absolutely not. Let God be true even though everyone is a liar. Paul says, of course that's not what I'm saying. God's promises are all true and will be true no matter what. So what is Paul saying then? Well, he's going to clarify. Paul says, what I'm saying is that God's promises are true. His law is righteous. Circumcision is beneficial. And God will judge the Jews. God will find them to be guilty and unrighteous in their sin. When they sin, when they break God's commands, he can judge them just like everybody else. God's covenant faithfulness to his promises in no way undermines his ability to judge his people and find them guilty. It's a false dichotomy. That's what Paul's getting at. So the Jews believed that if God is faithful to his promises, then they must be justified in his sight. They must be justified. 
They must be pure. They must be righteous because he had given them the law and circumcision. And Paul says, nope, God is faithful and God will judge unrighteous Jews along with Gentiles. Both are true at the same time. And he says, if you want proof, just look at King David. Just look at King David. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. This is a direct quote of Psalm 51, verse 4. This is written by David at the height of his power as the king of Israel. So question, was David a Jew? Yep, absolutely. Was David circumcised? For sure, he was circumcised on the eighth day as a baby. Did David love God's law? I think you could argue David loved God's law maybe more than anyone in the Old Testament. David wrote much of the book of Psalms. You read the Psalms, and this is all over the place. David wrote Psalm 119, verse 13. He says, with my lips, I proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. He's talking about God. I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. He's talking about the law written down in the Old Testament. David loved God's law. Was David included in the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Absolutely he was. Not only was David a descendant of Abraham, the promise came directly from God to David. It was clarified, it was ratified in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God came to David and he says, David, it's through you that I'm going to establish my eternal kingdom. It is through you that the Messiah is going to come. David was certainly included in the promises. David was a hero of the faith. Have you ever read the story of David and Goliath? You ever heard that one? (laughs) Or David and Saul, David fighting the Philistines. David's Jewish credentials were off the charts. If anybody, if anybody could be justified because of their Jewishness, justified in God's eyes because he was a Jew, David would be at the very top of that list. Maybe underneath only Abraham and Moses. But what did David say about God? What did David think about God's ability to judge the Jew? In Psalm 51, verse 3, he says, For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me against you, God, You alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. David did not view himself as immune from God's judgment because he was Jewish. He didn't think that way. And he's he's the king of the nation of Israel. He's a hero of the faith. He's a man God had used to do incredible things. And he says, God, you are right to condemn me. You are just to judge me. So what's Paul's point? Paul's point is that God is just to punish sin and unrighteousness wherever he finds it, whether in Gentiles or in Jews. Why? Well, I think it's implied from Psalm 51 because people are responsible for their choices. People understand 
right and wrong, Gentile or Jew. And the Jews understood it even more clearly because they had the law. And people still sin consciously, on purpose, against God. This is a big part of David's point in Psalm 51. Next question, verse 5. Back to Romans 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Okay, so third question. I'm going to restate it here. Paul, isn't it unfair for God to judge the Jews even if they sin against him? How many of you guys have ever purchased a diamond before? Raise your hand. You don't have to be shy. Okay. (laughs) I've purchased one diamond in my lifetime. Uh, I was 25 years old, and I was very in love. (laughs) My wife wears it on her wedding ring. And so I wanted to, I was very in love. I wanted to get the best, most amazing, brightest, whitest, biggest diamond I could responsibly afford. But I also love a good deal. And so I looked at a lot of diamonds as an engaged young man. I did a lot of shopping around. And what I discovered is that at every jewelry store, with every diamond, when they bring it out and show it to you, they don't just put it on the countertop. Where do they put it when they're going to show it to you? They put it on a piece of black velvet cloth. And do you know why they do that? The reason they do that is because the bright white sparkle of the diamond stands out even more against the dark black surface. The darkness highlights the light. And so Paul has answered the first two questions. There's tons of advantages in Judaism. God is absolutely faithful to his covenant promises. Neither of those truths get you out of judgment, though. And now his opponents shift. And they say, well, but is it really fair for God to judge us? And they're pointing to their history. The Jews had a long history of unfaithfulness to God. You think about the golden calf in the book of Exodus. You think about the Asherah poles, the altars made to Baal and Moloch. They're constantly through the centuries complaining against God and disregarding God and openly disobeying God and openly worshiping idols that God commanded them not to worship. And time after time, God would punish them, but then he would deliver them. He would rescue them. The Jews through the ages have been on the brink of extinction so many times. And time after time, God saves them and restores them and sustains them. And their point is, look at how much glory God has gotten even through our disobedience. Wouldn't it be unfair for him to judge us and condemn us? That's the question. What's Paul's answer? Verse 6. Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. Now, at first glance, when you read verses 6 through 8, it seems like Paul is just dismissing the question. It seems like he's just saying, well, that's a dumb question. You know, those people deserve what's coming to them. But I don't think that's actually what's happening here. 
And to see Paul's interaction with this argument, you need to understand the logic of the argument. And he doesn't spell it out explicitly in the text. So I'm going to spell it out. If you were to formulate this rebuttal, if you were to formulate this argument in a logical sequence, it would look like this. Here, here it is. Premise number one. The purpose of human beings is to glorify God. Now that's not explicit in the text, but it's implied in verse 7. But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. So the person who's making this claim, they are, they're working with the understanding the purpose of human beings is to glorify God. And that's true. Premise one, the purpose of human beings is to glorify God. True. Premise two, God is glorified by people no matter what, in their obedience or in their sin. If, if by my lie, by my lie, by my sin, by my law breaking, God's truth abounds to his glory. Premise two is also true. I don't know if you realize this. In the end, no person can diminish God's glory. No one. It will shine in infinite brightness forever because He is God. His glory is unstoppable. It doesn't matter what you do. God will be glorified in it. That's premise two. That's also true. Premise one is true. Premise two is true. Conclusion. Therefore, God should not judge people for sin because even in their sin, they're fulfilling their purpose to glorify God. This is the argument. Okay? This is the argument. If by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? When you formulate it this way, premise one, premise two, conclusion, you can see that what Paul is dealing with and responding to is an invalid argument. An invalid argument in logic is when you have true premises, but the conclusion does not follow necessarily from the premises. And this is what we have here. Why does it not follow? Well, what Paul says is that it's because God's judgment of your sin is what brings him glory in it. In your sin, God is glorified as he judges you. This is how it works. It is through God's judgment and condemnation and punishment of sinners ultimately that he is glorified even in them. You think about all of the sin in the world. All of the corruption in the world. All of the evil that you see all around us. How is God glorified in that? How is God glorified when a terrorist kills innocent people in cold blood? Well, the Bible says he's glorified when one day the universe... All the people who've ever lived and even the angels and the demons and the spiritual forces that we can't even see and maybe don't even know about now, they will witness God bring about justice. He will punish every sinner. He will right every wrong and he will be shown to be good, holy, righteous, and just when he does. This is why Paul's rebuttal is, otherwise, how will God judge the world? It is God's judgment that brings him glory through and in spite of the sinfulness of people. This brings us full circle back to Paul's conclusion. All people are guilty before God, Jew and Gentile alike. All people need to be saved from God's wrath through Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. 
So he's dealing with these questions. But as I was studying this passage this week, this seemed to me like an incomplete picture of this text, of what Paul is saying. Because it seems a little bit disjointed. When you read the text as a whole, it's like Paul just radically shifts the subject, almost. So what's the point of Judaism? Judaism's amazing. Tons of advantages for the Jews. Okay, well, is God then, is he unfaithful to his covenant promise? If the law and circumcision didn't save the Jews, nope, he's perfectly faithful. And then, like, on a dime, he switches the subject. And it's not the question that he's responding to that changes it. It's Paul. It's his answer. In verse 4, he changes the subject to God's justice in punishing sinners. Look at this, verse 3 into verse 4. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. So this makes sense. What's the point of Judaism? What's the point of the promises? What's the point of the covenant? And then he changes the subject. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. And then he begins defending God's justice in judging and punishing sin. So here's the question I've been wrestling with all week. What is the connection between God's faithfulness to his covenant promises and God's justice in punishing sinners. Is Paul just tackling random questions? Because that could be the answer. He's just maybe a little bit scatterbrained and okay, well, I'm going to talk about God's covenant faithfulness and now I'm going to talk about God's justice in punishing sin. I don't think that's what's happening. There's a connection to be made here. What is the connection between God's faithfulness to his covenant promises and God's justice in punishing sinners? And I think the answer is in Psalm 51. Paul quotes Psalm 51 verse 4, but I think he's trying to point his readers to the whole psalm, the whole idea, the whole message. So let's pick it back up in Psalm 51 4 and look at what David goes on to say. David says, so you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. David wrote Psalm 51 after he committed adultery and murder. This is a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm of admission of guilt. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. And you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David has committed adultery. He has committed murder. And he says, God, would you give me integrity in the inner self? David's lied about this whole situation repeatedly. He doesn't have any integrity left. He asks God to purify him and make him clean. He's an adulterer and a murderer. 
He asks God to wash him and make him whiter than snow, and he has blood all over his hands. I mean, what a joke. He asks God to remove the guilt of his sin. He asks God for a new, clean heart, a new, steadfast spirit. How can he do that in his state as a murderer and an adulterer? One way to summarize all of this would be for David to say, God, would you make me holy? Make me holy. Make me like you. How can David ask for that? Well, I think it's because David understood this was always the point of the law. This was always the point of circumcision and the temple and the covenant, all of it. This is the connection that God's covenant promises were always meant to bring about God's holiness in his people. This is God's plan. This is his design. This is why Paul would so strongly condemn this idea. Let's do what is evil so that good may come. This undermines the entire point of God's covenant. He wants to make you holy, not evil. He wants to make you righteous and pure like people were designed to be before sin entered the equation. And in the Bible... Old Testament and New, God purifies sin through judgment. He purifies sin through punishment. He will eradicate all sin from the universe on the day of judgment. What the scriptures reveal is that you can either face that judgment by yourself, you can receive that punishment in yourself and it's not going to matter if you were jewish and had the law and the rituals and the temple and circumcision and it's not going to matter if you went to church and you sang hymns and you read the bible if you've sinned you will be separated from a holy god in hell that's one end that's one outcome or jesus can take your punishment and that's the only way you can be made holy Jesus dies so you can live. Jesus takes your sin and gives you his righteousness. Jesus becomes guilty on the cross so that you can be made innocent. This is how God purifies you. This is how God can give a person a new, clean heart. He judged and punished his perfect, spotless son in your place. And all of the Old Testament, the law, circumcision, the covenants, the rituals, the temple, the sacrifices, they all point to Jesus. And whether or not David understood the specific mechanics of the coming of the Messiah, I think he understood it deeply enough to know, God, I need your grace. I need you to save me. I need your spirit to change me from the inside out and make me holy. So just to close, one point of application. Don't confuse religious practice with personal holiness. This was the mistake that the Jews made. Do not confuse religious practice with personal holiness. David goes on to say this at the close of Psalm 51. He says, you do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. The advantage the Jew had was that they knew God was holy and they knew God wanted to make them holy. They knew that from the very beginning. 
Circumcision was meant to be a reminder of that. That was the whole point. It was, it was meant to show them God wants to cut away your sinfulness. And he wants to give you a heart that worships and loves him in faith. The problem is they assumed they were holy inwardly because they practiced religion outwardly. And Christians can make the same mistake. You can make the same mistake. What I have found, <clears throat> and I found this definitely for myself, but I see it in my friends, I see it in you guys, I see it in people I know. I have found that the older you get, the more incentive, natural incentive there is to be involved in Christian activity. There's, there's just more natural incentive. You, want, you, you get married, you have some kids, you want your kids to be around other Christian kids because you think, well, there's probably a higher likelihood that those kids and their parents will share my values. So I want to get my kids in church. The older you get, whether or not you're married, I found that most people tend to value self-discipline more as they get older. They value community more as they get older. They value making real contributions to their community, their society, and church is a great way to do that. The older you get, the less people you will find who are all about just going to the bars and, and partying and spending money frivolously. Just Life teaches you that that doesn't satisfy, that's not good, that doesn't really last or have any value or meaning. And so the older people get, they tend to value living a moral life more. And this is especially true if you're married and you have kids. And so going to church singing the songs, the hymns, reading your Bible a little bit, going to community group, doing family devotions, serving, praying with your wife and kids, all of that, it becomes more attractive for all kinds of reasons. I've noticed that many people get involved in church for the first time, maybe in their life, when their kids get to a certain age. Or at least it's the first time since they were little kids. They think, okay, man, I, I got to get my kids in church. Let's start going to church. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's always a good thing to get involved in a church where the Bible is taught and the gospel is preached, for sure. But it's not the main thing. Not even close. The Bible says man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. God wants your heart. God wants you in the secret, quiet places of your heart where no one sees except you and Him. He wants you to turn away from sin, and He wants you to trust Him. He wants you to worship Him in your thought life. He wants you to worship Him in your finances. He wants you to worship Him with your free time, in your friendships, in your leisure. How often do you think about God and consider God when you're just consuming entertainment content? <laughs> when you're just relaxing? He wants you to pursue holiness purely out of a desire to please Him in faith. And don't confuse church activity with that. Don't confuse moral living with that. Don't confuse serving with that. Don't confuse going to community group with that or giving or singing. Don't confuse any of that with a humble heart that depends on Christ. That was the mistake of the Jews and you and I can make the same mistake. Now how do you avoid that mistake? So many different things. But I'll, I want to give you one. You have to get alone with God. 
because we are complicated beings and our motives are all intertwined. And so it's good to care about your kids. It's good to care about self-discipline. It's good to want to have strong Christian friendships for just emotional support even. That's part of God's design. But how do you get down into the center of your heart and, and look at what's really motivating me? This is what we talked about last week. What's really at the heart of the things that I'm doing with my life? And the only way you're going to know that consistently is you have to get alone with the Lord. You have to get quiet. You have to get by yourself, just you and Him. And don't just speak to Him. Let Him speak to you. Just just be still. Be quiet with God. Open His Word and listen to what He has to say. God desires purity of heart, humility of heart, holiness between you and Him. That's what He's after. Let's pray. God, thank You. Thank You, Lord, that You do give us a new heart. You do wash us clean. God, it's incredible to think that after murder and adultery, that you would still wash David clean. You'd make him whiter than snow. And God, that gives us hope (laughs) because we are so much more guilty, so much more dirty in our sin on our own than we could ever even understand. And yet you will make us clean. You have made us clean in Christ. We're, We're free in Christ Sin doesn't have any claim on us anymore. And we can walk in purity. We can walk in holiness. And we're not dependent on practices for that. We're not dependent on labels for that. We're dependent only on you. And you've already done it on the cross. And so we celebrate that this morning. We thank you this morning. God, we pray that you'd make us men and women who have integrity. Not because of our self-effort but because of your transformation of our heart, because we've been born again by your power, by your grace, through your spirit, Lord, that that's what we would rely on. That's what we'd walk in. That's what we'd put our confidence in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.